Well, there's a popular series, a children's book series called The Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And uh, it became a movie or a series of movies, and I think maybe even a TV show now. And the main central actor is a middle schooler named Greg Heffley. And in one of the books, I was reading it with my daughters recently, or, and uh, in one of the books, it starts with this. He says, I mean, I love my family, but I'm just not sure we were meant to live together. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you if you've ever felt that way about your family. Um, but when we come to Jesus and we are adopted into the family of God, we look around and all of a sudden we realize we have a big family. We have a diverse family. We have a family we didn't get to choose. And I don't know if you've ever looked around a church or looked around at your experience in church or with people of faith and thought, I, I love these people, but I'm not sure we're meant to do life together. And if you've ever felt that way or struggled with that thought, then this series is for you. And this message is for you. And we're going to look at a passage where Paul, the Apostle Paul, is near the end of his life. He's, he's actually in Rome. He's either in a Roman prison or under house arrest. And He's awaiting execution, and he writes a letter to a man named Timothy, who is a pastor of a church in Ephesus, a city where Paul helped actually begin the gospel work there. And so we're in 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to read to you verses 3 through 9. Paul writes, Timothy, I thank God for you, the God I serve with a clear conscience, just as my ancestors did. Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. I long to see you again. For I remember your tears as we parted, and I will be filled with joy when we are together again. I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news, the gospel. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it but because this was his plan from the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. So the question that we're going to answer this morning from this text is simply this. How do we do life together? How do we do this? And we're going to learn three things from this passage. We're going to learn there's three things we have to do if we're going to do life together. Number one, we're going to have to allow ourselves to be known. Allow yourself to be known. Number two, admit your need to grow. And then number three, accept the story being told, all right? So number one, allow yourself to be known. When we read this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1, it's filled with language. You can't really miss it, can you? It's filled with language that highlights the depth of relationship between Paul and Timothy. These are not people who just sort of know each other, who have passed by each other. These are people who have done life together. Timothy is actually Paul's spiritual son, which means that Paul discipled Timothy in the ways of the Lord. And they worked side by side for nearly a decade, beginning that work in Ephesus. Paul knows Timothy's family. He mentioned the mom and the grandmother by name. He knows Timothy's story. Timothy is on Paul's mind, and, and Paul says, I pray for you, not occasionally, but I pray for you daily. 
Paul remembers their emotional parting, the last time they saw each other and they said goodbye. I think it's a little funny that he says, Timothy, you cried. I didn't cry, but you cried. You're the crybaby. But he, he remembers the emotional parting. He remembers, I was there for some of the most significant spiritual moments of your life. I laid hands on you, and, and you received a spiritual gift. And then he makes this very vulnerable appeal to Timothy. Don't be ashamed of me, even though I'm in chains. Because many people were distancing themselves from Paul because of what had happened to him. This is a snapshot of what life together looks like. And life together means allowing yourself to be known. Now listen, there's lots of good reasons not to allow yourself to be known. (laughs) These are things we pick up over time, right? When people disappoint us, when they let us down, we have a bad experience in a church with people of faith. And we begin to accumulate lots of convincing arguments for why we should hold back and not give ourselves and not allow ourselves to be known. But what we're gonna see this morning is that there's so much to be gained from doing life together. And there's so much that we lose when we don't. And it does require us to allow ourselves to be known. And when it comes to being known, there's actually, there's many counterfeits of community, but there's two I just kind of want to mention because I think they're relevant more so than ever to our lives today. And the first one, now these are not bad things or wrong things. These are just things that are not enough on their own. And the first one is technology. How many of you would admit that technology has dramatically changed the way we do life together. Um, You know, social media creates all these sort of artificial communities, and some people are like, social media is an evil tool of the enemy that he's destroying our souls with over here, and some people are like, social media is an opportunity to be connected in meaningful ways, and I'm not in either extreme. I'm on social media, but I do think we have to pay attention to its limitations, what it can do and what it can't do. Facebook has 1.9 billion, with a B, 1.9 billion daily users. Every month, 2.9 billion people log in to Facebook. If Facebook was a country, if the, if the people on Facebook constituted a country, it would be the largest country in the world by almost 500 million. More than half of the world, nearly 60% of the world, now uses social media. 4.62 billion people log in and post videos of cats almost every single day, I think. <laughs> or something angry. 424 million users in just the last 12 months have joined social media. The average time, according to smartinsights.com, as of last month, the average time spent using social media is two hours and 27 minutes. So a tenth of your day is spent on social media. With teenagers, it's actually closer to six to seven hours a day spent on social media. Technology has connected us in some really unprecedented ways, but here's what sociologists are saying. Even though we are more connected than we've ever been, we feel more lonely than we ever have. Greatest connection ever, greatest reporting of loneliness, anxiety, mental health crisis, feeling of not being known. You know, because of the internet, we don't actually have to leave our house (laughs) to live our lives, right? You can do everything. You can order your groceries, have them delivered to your house. You can have a meal delivered. You can take classes. You can get a degree. You can watch a movie. You can meet people. You don't even have to leave anymore. We don't have to interact with people anymore. Because of the Internet, we have this over-reliance on uh, online interactions that's leading, actually, people say, to a breakdown in empathy in human beings. Because before, if you wanted to insult somebody, when I was growing up, if I wanted to insult somebody, I had to get in their face. 
And I, had to, I rarely did it because I can't fight, and I knew that what was coming next. But, but I, you'd have to get in their face, and you have to insult them. And if I were to insult Joe to his face, I would see how it affects him, right? Even if he tries to hide it, I, you can see kind of like the way that it impacts people. But behind a screen, you can't see the damage that your words are doing. And so child psychologists and sociologists are saying one of the great concerns for the next generation is a total lack of empathy because they're not seeing the impact of the way in which they treat one another. And because of technology, social media, and online communities, and again, I'm not against it, but I'm just giving us some things to consider. There's so many ways to layer our lives, have multiple identities, and present the perfect version of ourselves for the world to consume. But the problem is, is after we've used 16 filters on our photo and 17 takes of the same picture to get it right, here's the potential problem. If we're honest, we know that's not really us. It's not the real us. And we're left with this feeling that no one really knows me or no one knows the real me. And that's why one of the challenges for this generation is so connected, never away from each other, but so alone. Technology is not enough. Now, when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy 2,000 years ago, this was as fancy of technology as they had back then. But a letter actually is a form of technology. But Paul doesn't say, I've written you a letter, that's enough. What does is, what Paul says is, Paul says in verse 4, I long to see you, Timothy. Not just, I'm, here's a letter, but I want to actually be with you. So he recognizes we need to actually be together. If you want to be known, technology is not enough. It never will be. And maybe you're thinking, okay, we know that. Like, we're the ones who actually are here this morning. We showed up on Memorial Day weekend when there's dozens of other things to be doing. But here's one other thing that isn't enough. Not only is technology not enough, but proximity isn't enough. Proximity is enough. Just because we drove into the same parking lot, walked into the same building, drank the same coffee, sitting in the same room, sang the same songs, listening to the same sermon, it doesn't mean we're doing life together. It doesn't mean, because listen, proximity is not the same as allowing yourself to know, be known. Proximity is not the same as life together. Proximity is simply the opportunity to do life together. When we gather, we now have the opportunity to do life together in special ways, but it's not the same thing as doing life together. One of the key metaphors in the New Testament when they talk about the people of God, the community of God, the family of God, uh, is a temple or a structure, a building structure that's being put together. In fact, Peter, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.5, he says, you and I are living stones So we're living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. So you are a stone that God is constructing into a larger structure, into a building in which the Holy Spirit of God wants to dwell in his people. But as living stones, what that means is that if you can envision a wall built of stones, the stones are dependent upon each other. There are some stones that are are depending on you. And then there are some stones that you are depending on, right? The stones have to stack on top of each other, depend on one another in order to build a structure. The problem is, is we're living stones, so we pull ourselves out. And then it becomes this game of Jenga, which how long can that wall and that structure stand? And so if you envision a wall, a brick wall built of stones, there's some stones above you that depend upon you, and there's some stones below you that you depend on. And that's what it means to actually be the people of God is that there are people in your life that depend on you and there are people in your life that you depend on. Now, for some of you, you love one of those, but not the other. Some of you are like, yeah, you want to depend on me? Absolutely. That's my thing. I'm Mr. Dependable. Anything you need, I'm there. 
but I'm never going to ask anyone for anything. That's some people. And then some people are like, I'll take everything I can get, but don't ask anything of me. But to be a part of the family of God, to be built into this wall means that there are people, we're doing life together in such a way that we need each other and we recognize our need for one another. So the key question is not, are you showing up? But the key question is, are you being built in? So technology isn't enough, it's artificial. Proximity isn't enough, it's really just an illusion or an opportunity at best. So how do we know that we're actually doing life together in a way where we are allowing ourselves to be known? You're not gonna like the first answer. The first answer is this. You are doing life in a way in which you are allowing yourself to be known if at times it's painful. (laughs) It's painful. It's costing you something. It's inconveniencing you. It's painful because, let's be honest, life together is messy. It's difficult. And you didn't get to choose the living stones that you're being built in with. And some of the living stones that you're being built in with, you would not have chosen Paul writes this letter because life as a church is messy. There's church issues in Ephesus. There were false teachers who were teaching false gospels. Timothy was a young leader, and he was struggling with his confidence. Suffering was a major issue in that church. Life together and being known can and will be painful. D.A. Carson, in his book, Love in Hard Places, says that the church is a band of natural enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake. A band of natural enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake. So what does this mean? A band of natural enemies simply means this, that if you look around the room this morning and if we were to get everybody that calls Trinity their home church together, you know, a few hundred plus people, get everyone together, you would look around and you would go, where else would this group of people hang out? Where else would we do life together? You're very diverse. Different ethnicities, different socioeconomic standings, different ages, different political views, all over the place, different types of people. We are a band of natural Enemies, people who normally would not come together on everything. But why do we come together? What is so beautifully unique about the people of God is the second half of that definition. Let's leave the definition up. It says that being, learning to love each other for, can we go back one slide? Learning to love each other for Jesus' sake. So we are loving one another, not because we have so much in common or because we have everything in common. We don't. And if we did, we'd be more of a club than we would be a church but loving each other for Jesus' sake, for who he is and for his mission. And if life together for you hasn't in some way been painful, if it's not costing you anything, then maybe maybe you're not allowing yourself to be known. Or maybe you're not making the effort you should to know others. Some people, they say, yeah, I know the pain is coming, and that's actually when I'm going to leave. (laughs) As soon as the pain comes, someone offends me, steps on my toes, that will be my cue to go find somewhere else until I get hurt there. And I understand that there's real hurt. And there's real reasons at times to move on. I get that. However, just consider this. My conviction is that you don't really have community until you've gone through a crisis or a conflict and you stayed. Until then, it's just convenient. But when you go through conflict and you go through crisis and then you stay, you work through it and you stay, now you have community. So how do we know we're doing it in a way we're allowing ourselves to be known? It's painful, but here's another thing that we know, and this is much more encouraging. It's promising. It's not just painful, it's promising. It's painful because we're a band of natural enemies, but it's promising because we're learning to love each other for Jesus' sake. It's promising because it gives us a glimpse of what is to come, and it can give us such joy and such strength. Are you allowing yourself to be known? Now, a practical next step that you might want to take this morning if the Spirit is speaking to you about this is just to get involved in something beyond Sundays. 
There, there, I know there are some people who say, like, I'm going to show up on Sundays, but, like, I, like, the dinner parties, the church picnic, the men's breakfast, the women's brunch, like, that's just too much, like, time with people. And I recognize there's different personalities. The extroverts are like, can we do more of that? And the introverts are like, can we never do that again? Um, and, I, and I totally understand that. However, our willingness to step out and allow ourselves to be known. On the other side of that, there's promise. And the promise is life together. All right, so we allow ourselves to be known. Second thing that we learn is that you need to admit your need to grow. Two things we talk about at Trinity a lot. You don't grow on accident, and you don't grow alone. You don't grow on accident, and you don't grow alone. We're so intentional. Oh, there actually is one way we grow on accident. I went to my primary care physician this past week and stepped on the scale, and I saw the scale. I was like, oops, <laughs> grew on accident again. Uh, so there, there is one area in life I think some of us grow on accident. But for the most part, any growth is meaningful and intentional. If you're growing at your career, if you're getting better at your job, it's because you're putting in time and you're going to trainings and you're focused and you're working hard. If you're growing your retirement, it's because you are sacrificing current things for future things, right? It takes intentionality. If you are intentional about your health and you're at the gym and you are, you know, you are robbing yourself of joys like donuts and cake and, and carbs and stuff like that, but you're doing things. If you're raising children, you're probably very intentional about the opportunities that you're trying to make sure that they have and the ways in which they learn. We do this because we know that growth doesn't happen on accident, but then we think spiritual growth does. And someday we're just going to wake up and be like, oh, wow, look what happened. I'm so mature in Christ, <laughs> just on accident. I'm a fully formed disciple of Jesus, and I didn't do anything. I'm just here I am. Spiritual growth doesn't happen on accident. Paul says to Timothy, you fan into flame the spiritual gift God gave you. Yes, God gives the gift, but we have a responsibility to develop that gift and to fan into flame the gifts that God has given us. Later in this passage, he tells Timothy in verses 13 and 14, hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me and carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. Does that sound intentional? Intentionally do these things. You and those you love will not become fully formed disciples of Jesus on accident. Here's some questions that we should be asking ourselves. What are my daily spiritual disciplines? What do I do intentionally every day so that I will grow? What do I intentionally do every week? Maybe that's why you're here this morning, because it's part of your plan to grow. What do I intentionally, what is your plan to grow in Christ and to become more and more like him? I mean, when I was growing up, you know, spiritual disciplines, when I say that word, I mean things like reading your Bible and spending time in prayer and silence and reflection and meditation, um, and there's other things. But when I was growing up, I often thought of those things as my opportunity to remind God of how good I am. So God, look, at, I'm reading my Bible today. I hope you're paying attention. I hope you notice. I'm in Leviticus. I get bonus points for this. <laughs> I'm reading this. I'm, I'm not skipping it. I'm reading it. I, so, God, I hope you're paying attention. I hope you see. Oh, God, I just prayed, uh, and I prayed for 10 minutes, and I didn't ask for anything for myself. Thank you for making me so righteous and holy. I hope you're noticing how good I am. God, I'm giving my money to the church. I hope you know. So, for me, growing up, a lot of times, my spiritual disciplines was, God, I hope, I hope you notice how good I am. But, you know, this season in my life, as I've grown, I've realized that spiritual disciplines are not about me reminding God how good I am, but me reminding myself of how good he is. And I need to be reminded because I forget. And other things look good. 
And I forget of the goodness of Jesus. And so when I open up the Bible every day, I don't do it to check it off or to prove to somebody that I'm spiritual. I do it because my heart needs it. I need to be reminded of his goodness. You don't grow on accident. And when we do life together like this, when we gather weekly like this, it gives us the opportunity to plug into something intentional. And often we offer plans for you to grow, whether it's a reading, Bible reading plan, whether it's a learn together class, whether it's a ladies study, there's things that are often to give you intentional environments to grow. So you don't grow on accident, but also you don't grow alone. Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers says that no one, Not rock stars, professional athletes, software billionaires, not even geniuses make it alone. And the whole point of this book, Outliers, is to show that even the people who look like they're self-made geniuses and experts, they had so many other factors that contributed to their success. No one grows alone. And Paul knows this. He mentions to Timothy, your faith is not alone. Paul talks about the faith of his ancestors. Paul says your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, it was their faith first, and they gave it to you. You're the benefactor of other people's intentionality in passing on the faith. And then in the next chapter, 2 Timothy 2, he says to to Timothy, you've heard me teach these things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who can pass them on to others. Did you see that? That's three handoffs of the faith. Paul hands it off to Timothy. Timothy hands it off to trustworthy people who can then hand it off to others. This is what it means to not grow alone, that we grow together, that we grow from each other. Every single human being has blind spots. We talked about this Wednesday night in our church class here. Blind spots. No one in your life has lied to you more than yourself. There's things you cannot see about yourself. You just can't. So how do we deal with that? How do we handle that? We invite other people into our lives. Who have you invited into your life to speak truth to you, to ask you hard questions? We don't grow alone. And by the way, this idea is so in the face of our society because we live in a very individualistic society, maybe the most individualistic society in history, and as a result, there's a movement even amongst Christians to say, I just need Jesus, but I don't need his people. I'll just have a relationship with him, but not his people. Pastor Tim Challies, in an article he wrote, says this, neglecting to meet with God's people is a sign of overwhelming and outrageous pride. You have somehow determined either that the gifts God has given others are of no real consequence to you, or you have determined that you are so gifted that you can happily survive without. The reality, of course, is that God has made Christians to thrive and survive only in community. Lone Christians are dead Christians. Life together means admitting your need to grow. What might a next step be for you? Maybe joining one of our Learn Together classes when we offer those a ladies' study regularly committing yourself to be here on Sundays to learn and to grow, finding a team to serve on. There's so many ways that you can grow here. There's some next steps that we can be taking. So we allow ourselves to be known. We admit our need to grow. And then lastly, Pastor Anthony is going to join me. We accept the story that's being told. I want to bring you back to verses 9 and 10 as we finish. Paul says, He's summarizing the gospel here, the good news, the the central message and motivation of our church and every Christian church is the gospel. Verse 9. Here's why I want you to notice as we read this again. I want you to notice the pronouns. They're all in the third person. For God saved us. And he called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. 
and now he has made all of this plan to us, all this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. That's what verse 10 says. This story that is being told here, right? I, I love verse 9 because it's just the gospel in a nutshell that God saved us, yes, from sin and from self and from sickness and from shame, but he didn't just take us out of something, but he took us for something. You've not just been saved from something, you've been saved for something. So he called us to live a holy life, which means a life devoted to his lordship, Jesus, our Savior, and our Lord. And then it says he did this not because because we, you and I, deserved it. We don't deserve this. We've not earned this. We've not done anything to achieve this for ourselves. We cannot achieve the work of Jesus. We can only receive the work of Jesus because this was his plan. It wasn't your plan. It wasn't my plan. It wasn't the plan of human thinking. This was a divine plan from the beginning of time, which means God was not reactive. He was proactive from the beginning of time. He was planning to save you and call you and keep you And how did he show us his plan? Through the grace of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Two things I want us to notice. Number one, it's not you, it's us. It's not me, it's we. The story of the Bible is not that God is saving individuals and whisking them off to heaven as quickly as he can. The story of the Bible is that God is forming a people, a people that belong to him, a people that reflect his glory, a people that extend his reign and his rule over every corner of society and creation who are working for the renewal of all things, spiritual renewal, social renewal, that we might make our cities and our towns and our villages great places to live, places to be that reflect the glory of God. That's why from Genesis 12 to Revelation 21, when God called Abraham, he didn't call him and say, I just, I just want you. He said, I want your family. And the reason I want your family is because through you, you're gonna be a nation. And And that nation is going to bless all the nations of this world because I want a people. And in Revelation 21, at the end of time, when the Apostle John has the vision of heaven, it's a people gathered together from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. This is not simply about getting individuals to heaven. This is about a people of God who express heaven, the heaven of God here on earth. Now, how did God make this possible? How did he make a way for us to be his people? Well, it was in verse 9. We did not deserve it, it was his plan. He showed us his grace through Christ Jesus. How do we see the grace of God in Jesus? Two things. With Jesus' death, he absorbed the wrath of God for us. And with his life, Jesus secured the welcome of God for us. Let me say that again. With his death, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for us. With his life, he secured the welcome of God for us. Now, I know that word wrath is problematic. Some of you probably just didn't like it. (laughs) Wrath is is a problematic word because we only know human wrath. And human wrath is petty, it's petulant, it's hurtful, it's selfish. But God's wrath is not that way. See, wrath... Wrath is not the opposite of love. Wrath is an inevitable outcome of love. When you love something and you see that thing or that person being threatened, how do you respond? Indifferently? Of course not. Wrath, or maybe there's a better word, but that's the word we're using this morning. Wrath surfaces in your heart when you see the person that you love being destroyed by the choices that they're making. Or you see a person that you love being destroyed by another person. You don't sit back and go, I love them too much to get involved. You love them so much that your wrath motivates you to act. So wrath, the opposite of love is not wrath. The opposite of love is indifference. 
that you would act, see, and do nothing despite your power to do so. And the greater the love, the greater the wrath. This past week, our country is mourning this unthinkable tragedy in Texas. Whatever conclusions you've come to, here's what I think we all agree on. You've probably at some point this week felt something that might be described as a little bit of wrath. Wrath towards the evil. Wrath towards the response or the lack of response or however you feel about it, wrath. But listen, whatever wrath you feel about what happened in Texas is nothing compared to the wrath that people that live in that town feel. And nothing compared to the parents who lost their children. Why? Because even though we care for that situation, we don't love them the way that the parents love their child. The greater the love, the greater the wrath. And if we serve a God of infinite love, then there's an infinite wrath. Again, not petty, petulant, punishing, but a wrath towards the sin that was destroying the creation that he so desperately loves. And so, what to do with that wrath towards sin? How would God pour his wrath out on sin but not destroy all the sinners? The cross, where Jesus became our sin. And so with his death, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God that was destined for you and I. But with his life, he secured the welcome of God. Now, how does this help us? When we see Jesus absorbing the wrath, we no longer have to protect ourselves. And when we see Jesus securing the welcome, we no longer have to prove ourselves. And you know what prevents us from allowing ourselves to be known? The need to protect ourselves. And you know what prevents ourselves from admitting our need to grow? the need to prove ourselves. If your life is all about proving yourself, you'll never admit your need to grow. If your life is all about protecting yourself, you'll never allow yourself to be known. But if you can look at the cross and see what Jesus has done for you, it frees you from the fear of needing to protect yourself, the pride of needing to prove yourself, and now you can allow yourself to be known, you can admit your need to grow, and you can enter into the story that God is telling forming a people. When you know that you're in based on the undeserved, unchanging, unmerited work of Jesus, it frees you from the enslavement of the need to protect or prove. Now you can enter the story. You can allow yourself to be known, admit your need to grow, and accept the story being told. The gospel of Jesus is both the way in and the way forward. Let's pray together this morning.